Well, I thought that um, since this is my first uh, Sunday as the interim rector, that I might just say a few words about myself. Um, so you know who it is who will be up front for um, the next weeks and months, and hopefully not much longer than that until we find a new rector. My name is Glenn, you can call me that. And um, Wycliffe College is where I worked for 30 years or more as a professor of the Old Testament. And uh, it included preaching the Old Testament and Hebrew and um, languages related to Hebrew as well as Greek. So one nerdy biblical language person, Keith Ganser, has been, return, re, has been replaced by another nerdy biblical languages person. Uh, and um, I hope that uh, you'll put up with this and that that may be of some benefit to you one way or the other. I am married to uh, another professor of the Old Testament here at Wycliffe College. My wife and I have both taught here for many years and my wife Marion is continuing. Some of you who knew that I was married to Marion thought I was married to Marion Karushiak. And uh, Gary, I think, would be upset uh, to find out that that was so, and it would complicate things. My wife, Marion, is a different Marion. And uh, she is uh, not here. She attends another church, another Anglican church called the Church of the Resurrection, where we both attended for many years and where she continues to have a ministry. We have three grown children, two of whom are married. And this uh, week, no, last week, we became grandparents for the first time. So um, thank you. <laughs> So all of these stories about women giving birth uh, and the miracle of it uh, is uh, kind of striking home with us. Um, so I think that's, uh, that's all I really wanted to, to say um, about myself. I look forward to serving with you. I'm no stranger to Christ the King. I've been here for a few years, and I even attended occasionally back in the days of Blythewood, when you met at uh, Blythewood. And I know um, your former priests, Jonathan and Len, as well as Keith. And I was at uh, Keith's installation many years ago at Christ the King. So it's nice to be back with you in a different capacity. Also, by way of introduction, I just want to say something about the change of venue. Uh, I felt badly when we had to move to the refectory because I thought the last thing a congregation needs at this time is one more change. <laughs> We all have a tolerance that uh, can easily be consumed by too much change. We're not here to bring change upon you without reason. It was the decision of the college. They want to use Leonard Hall next term as a classroom. And they gave us the choice between using the refectory here or the chapel down the way. And many of us thought, you know, the refectory has tables. We could put our Bibles on tables like we used to at Crimson Tea. There would be coffee at the back. So we're trying to actually reduce change, uh, or at least that's our selling point anyway, is we're using this space um, that you could look on in one of two ways. One, yes, it's a change, but two, we hope you feel at home and that it reminds you a little bit of Crimson Teas. So those two things by way of introduction. Our text this afternoon, as by God's infinite grace and mercy, we continue to hear from the living God in his word, is Luke chapter 1, verses um, 
26 to 56. And I want us to look at the passage this morning under four headings. Um, the first is to back us up prior to verse 26, which is why I asked Susie to read the preceding section that had to do with the revelation to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. Our passage proper begins, however, with Gabriel's visit to Mary. So uh, heading number one is some background, which will take us back to the passage that Susie started to read. Then the first, the second heading is um, Gabriel's visit to Mary, verses 26 to 38. And then the other headings follow the paragraph divisions as well. Mary's visit to Elizabeth in verses 39 to 45. And finally, the Magnificat, which we said together and which we say regularly on Sundays, verses 46 to 56. So those are um, the four headings. Now we're back in the Gospels, uh, but not in Matthew. You remember that before Advent, we were doing a series on Matthew, and we are still diverting from Matthew's Gospel as we look at Advent passages. And for two weeks in the past, Keith has taken us through the last servant song in Isaiah 51 to Isaiah 53. And for the next few weeks, while Advent remains and Christmas dawns upon us, we are going to be looking at passages at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And so this morning, we look in particular at the revelation of Gabriel to Mary when the news is announced that she would be the virgin mother of Jesus Christ. And then we come to the passage, secondly, where Mary visits Elizabeth, who is also pregnant as a miracle. And then thirdly, the Magnificat, Mary's song. So I want us to orient ourselves a little bit to Luke and to Luke's gospel. We have jumped in close to the beginning, but let's remind ourselves of who Luke is and some of the purposes and distinctives of this gospel. Well, Luke, who uh, is uh, unanimously attributed by tradition to have written the gospel of Luke and for whom there is no doubt, uh, wrote reason to doubt his authorship of this gospel, was a traveling companion of Paul when Paul traveled around the Mediterranean world establishing the early church. And uh, Luke checked in and out with Paul at various times. And so Luke is someone who was one of the first apostles or missionaries in the early church. And sometime towards the end of his, uh, his ministry, perhaps after Paul had died, Luke was aware that there was um, different stories around about Jesus and that there was room for people to be confused. And Luke had been keeping a careful record of the events surrounding Jesus and wanted to record for posterity's sake the traditions about Jesus. So at the beginning of our gospel in the introduction, Luke is indicating that he's writing this to a certain Theophilus. And so here's Luke with Theophilus in mind, who is perhaps a benefactor, but Luke also has in mind anybody who wants to hear the good news about Jesus. And so Luke has before him probably the Gospel of Mark, as well as some traditions about prophecies in the area of Judea that neither Matthew nor um, Mark have. Uh, the passages that we're looking at this morning are in fact quite unique, or this afternoon are in fact quite unique to Luke. 
And so we're benefiting from some of the traditions that Luke has. Luke, as we know, had a particular concern for the disenfranchised. Um, women typically love the Gospel of Luke because Luke spends a lot of time focusing on women. Luke spends a lot of time focusing on the poor. And Luke's concern is uh, to uh, portray the message about Jesus as carefully and as conscientiously as he, as he can. And so he says at the beginning of Luke, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were witnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may, be, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So friends, the stories that we're reading and the message about Jesus is not um, fairy tales made up. This is a man who is a professional. He's skilled in classical Greek. He's well-cultured. He's a student of history. He's a student of the scriptures. He has had access to the apostles. He's got Mark's gospel in front of him. He has fresh traditions in front of him. And he's wanting to write down for us and for the church the traditions that he's received from these eyewitnesses. So although Luke is not an eyewitness himself, he has credible eyewitness testimony before him. So that's a little bit about Luke, his gospel, and his emphases. I wonder if you have ever noticed when it comes to Advent and Christmas that uh, there are a lot of readings at the beginnings of the gospel about John the Baptist. And I've always felt as though John the Baptist was kind of anticlimactic. Uh, we read passages about John the Baptist, and I was tempted to skip the one that Susie uh, read for us this morning. And as I planned uh, sermons for the next few weeks, I also skipped the other passages about John to get to Jesus. Because, of course, Jesus is the star of the show. And John is like... Um, well, he's, he's, he's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, partly because he's right at the turning of the era. He's crucially important. But if you're like me, you sort of feel as though John is the person who introduces the speaker at the banquet. And the person who introduces the speaker goes on and on. And you want to just sort of say, look, you're here to introduce the main speaker. Introduce him and sit down. The story is told of Winston Churchill, um, who spoke at a, a university in the US that had a short name. I don't know whether it was Yale or Duke, and I thought it would be unkind even to look it up because it doesn't flatter the institution. But anyway, here was Winston Churchill coming to speak to the university, and the person who introduced him made a little ditty out of, let's say it was Yale, Y stands for this, blah, 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 A stands for this, blah, 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 L stands for this, blah, 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 E stands for this, and it went on and on. And Churchill, with his typical wit, when he began to st stand up and speak, he said, well, like you, I'm sure that you are grateful that I'm not speaking here tonight at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. <laughs> because the concern might have been that the introductory speaker would have gone through every letter of that mouthful. So that raises the question for us, why the seemingly over-the-top emphasis on John? Well, there are lots of reasons for that, but one of them is a bit of a surprise. 
And that is that there was some uncertainty about the role of John in relation to that of Jesus in the early church. And I want to um, just uh, illustrate the confusion by showing you this handout that is uh, that uh, Roger was kind enough to prepare and which is in your uh, bulletin. It has a chart in it. And the long and short of it is that um, with the benefit of hindsight and with the benefit of clear traditions like those which Luke preserved, the ministry of John the Baptist can easily be distinguished from that of Jesus. But that doesn't appear to have been the case at the time for everyone. I wonder if you ever noticed in the, in the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, that in chapter 19, we read something quite disturbing. We read that Paul encounters a group of people who seem to be apostles of John or disciples of John. I'll read Luke 19, or Acts 19 briefly. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, um, No, we not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Well, into what name then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking of tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. In the earlier chapter in, in Acts as well, it becomes uh, clear that Apollos also was somebody who was familiar with John the Baptist, and he had to be instructed more carefully in the way of Jesus. So one of the reasons why we have as much attention being cast on John the Baptist as Jesus is because there was quite a bit of confusion. You remember in the first century, people were looking for the Messiah, and um, because the Messiah hadn't come yet, there was a difference of opinion about uh, what to expect of the Messiah. And so in our chart here that um, Roger's prepared for us, um, I have a list of different expectations about the Messiah. And on the left are some of the expectations that were prevalent within Judaism, or more properly, Judaisms of the time. And then in the second column is a list of those criteria that um, the New Testament bears out based on the testimony of Scripture. The point is, it was confusing. Notice, for example, the third category down. There are two messiahs. The Dead Sea Scrolls community believed that there would be two messiahs, one from the line of David and another from the line of Aaron, a group of high priests. Well, in the passage that, Judy, that Susie read for us and the next paragraph and the next section immediately preceding ours, we're told that John the Baptist was from the line of Aaron. So he might have been understood by those who weren't fully schooled and those who weren't familiar with firsthand traditions that maybe he was the Messiah. And any of us who knows the Gospels know that the Gospels bend over backwards to make it perfectly clear that John was not the Messiah. Jesus was. Uh, John baptized us with water, and the Holy Spirit would come and baptize God's people with the Holy Spirit. So hindsight 
with the benefit of scripture is 2020. Take a quick look at the list and I think you'll see some characteristics that ring a bell. One of the uh, criteria that some people had for the Messiah would be that he would be one of the prophets resurrected. In Luke uh, chapter uh, 9 verse 19, when Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? Uh, the disciples share this. Well, some people say that you are one, that the Messiah is to be one of the, uh, the prophets who is resurrected. Uh, the Messiah was to be preceded by an Elijah figure. And that is indeed uh, borne out in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, and in Luke 1, 17, from which we read today. And Jesus does indeed affirm that the Messiah is to be preceded by an Elijah figure. And that Elijah figure was John the Baptist. Verse 17 of Luke chapter 1 says, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That is said of John the Baptist. He was also to be a prophet like Moses, which uh, the Messiah was. A few weeks ago when I was speaking on Matthew, I mentioned how much like Moses, Jesus was. That's very clear in the Gospel of John. And it is said of a prophet who would come in the future, namely the Messiah, that he would be a prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. He would be preceded by a prophet like Moses. Uh, there was some that thought he's going to be like Moses and others said, no, he's going to be preceded by a prophet like Moses. And in the case, both is right. Jesus was a prophet like Moses, but so was John the Baptist. That's why he comes in the desert wearing the clothes of Elijah. Elijah is, the clearly, is clearly the most readily identifiable Mosaic prophet in the Old Testament. Elijah... Uh, remember what happened after his um, high point um, on Mount Carmel? He was sad and he went to Mount Sinai, where God appeared to him on Mount Sinai, just like he appeared to Moses. Some people in the time thought that uh, the Messiah would rule for only a short period of time. And our passages make it clear, no, the Messiah's rule is an eternal rule, as it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, and also in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 15. Most people thought that the Messiah was going to be a military conqueror as well, that he was going to come and crush the Roman um, occupiers, to be kind of an Alexander uh, the Great all over again. And I was interested to read and learn this week that um, whereas I had thought that that tradition was kind of completely squashed, and that Jesus came as the Prince of Peace, which he did come as, that actually, as we can see, even in the Magnificat that we'll be looking at in a few minutes, that those traditions of the Messiah as a military conqueror are redefined in a way. Um, Mary, in her Magnificat, interprets God's grace shown to her in letting her be the mother of a baby, um, the same as God bringing down an empire and trampling on uh, the rich in order for the poor to prosper. And of course, we know that at the second coming of Jesus, there will be political, national, and military implications. And then here's one where there's a switch. No one at the time of Jesus, so far as we can tell from Jewish sources, other than the Bible, I would suggest, 
expected that the Messiah would be the suffering servant of Israel. Now, this is a little bit confusing because what has Keith been preaching about for the past two weeks? Well, the suffering servant of Israel. So what's the problem? Well, the issue was that those two individuals were regarded as discrete individuals. Uh, no one had clearly associated the suffering servant of Israel in Isaiah 53 with King David. They seem to be at contrast. I mean, here one is oppressed, one is beaten up, one is disfigured, one is trampled on, and the other is supposed to do the trampling. So one of the curveballs that came uh, and the delightful surprises that came with the ministry of Jesus was that he said that it was necessary that the Messiah should suffer. And he got that not simply from Isaiah 52 and 53, but he got that from the Psalms. And we know this particularly from one of the Dead Sea Scrolls versions of the Psalms, which interprets the Lament Psalms, those Psalms where the Davidic figure is suffering as prophetic about the David who would be to come. So at the time of Christ, many of the Psalms, the Lament Psalms, the hurting Psalms where David is suffering were understood to be a prophecy about the David who was to come. So the early church didn't make it up. It was present uh, in, in veiled form among the Dead Sea Scrolls community, and we see it clearly taught by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So um, that's why we have as many stories as we do about John the Baptist at the beginning. There was confusion. But of course, this was not an opportunity for Luke to offer an apologetic. This was an opportunity for Luke to teach the truth about John the Baptist. And if we have our records straight, according to Luke, there really should have been no confusion from the beginning. And the same with Mark and the same with Matthew. We're told that um, John the Baptist made it perfectly clear that he was not the Messiah, but that he was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And when he saw Jesus, he said, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John knew his place, Jesus knew his place, but the followers of John, in the midst of the confusion about who would be Messiah and who wouldn't be, got confused. Another passage along this vein, of course, uh, comes in the Gospel of Luke, uh, where the disciples come, the disciples of John come, and they, 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 they come to Jesus and they say, John wants to know whether you're the Messiah or whether we should look for someone else. John seems to have been surprised by the message of good news, by the healing and by the raising of the dead that was also to be the ministry of the Messiah. John was expecting more of a bad cop figure like John was. And so Jesus has to clarify, even for the benefit of John the Baptist, no, I am the Messiah. And then to spare this important prophet who is regarded as being the most important prophet of the Old Testament, uh, to spare him embarrassment, Jesus then goes on to tell the people how important John the Baptist was. So the stories about John the Baptist at the beginning of the Gospels, I think, are there for two reasons, one of which you might not have realized before, and that is because of the confusion that prevailed in the first century about who was who. Uh, in, in retrospect, we know it, but at the time, it was hard to know. So with that bit of background, I want us now uh, to turn uh, to um, the second point. Oh, I forgot the lesson that comes from this that I also wanted to mention. Sorry, it's in the, it's in the handout, which is a good thing. 
I wonder if you noticed in the course of my explanation that if it weren't for the scriptures, we might still be confused to this day. So um, when we're confused about different things and when we hear different stories about different people and different arguments, I like to thank God for the blessing that scripture is. Nothing could be more clear now than John the Baptist is the prophet and Jesus is the Messiah. So scripture's clarity is something to give thanks for and something to celebrate at all times, not the least in this Advent season. Paul writes to Timothy in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that all of scripture is divinely uh, breathed out and is profitable for reproof, correction, instruction, and so on. And so we can thank God that with the lens of scripture and with the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit, we have 2020 vision on such important matters as who the Messiah is and what the place of John the Baptist was. All right, Gabriel's visit to Mary is our second heading and it comes in verses 26 to 38. And it's called Gabriel's visit to Mary in some Bibles and the birth of Jesus foretold in other Bibles. Now you get the ball rolling at the very beginning when you hit a snag in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. In the sixth month, the sixth month takes us back again to John. The beginning of our passages here, these three lessons are bookended by um, the birth of John the Baptist. It was when Elizabeth was six months old that the, virgin, that the, uh, the angel came to uh, Mary. And Mary finished her visit with Elizabeth at the end of three months more. So the timing of John the Baptist's birth frames our story. Now that's a matter of interest. It's uh, a Lucan practice uh, as well. He sometimes just marks time this way. But there's a really important lesson here that I want to underscore for anyone who has ever experienced the reproach of not being able to have a child or anyone who's ever had relatives who've experienced reproach for not being able to have a child. I know that this happens in some cultures. And it's interesting that in the passage immediately preceding verse 26 that uh, Susie read for us, poor Elizabeth, she is like Sarah and Zachariah is like Abraham. They're old and they haven't been able to have a child and the child's been promised to them. But Mary or Elizabeth hides for five months, probably because she sort of thought, I, it's just too good to be true. I want to make sure that the baby's viable. And what if I'm a little bit pregnant and then the miracle baby is lost. People will say, oh, God must have favored you and now he's judging you. So my point is this in verse 25, Elizabeth hits the nail on the head. She regards the reproach of childlessness as being a reproach of the people. There was nothing wrong with Zechariah. There was nothing wrong with Elizabeth. In fact, when you look at chapter one, uh, verse eight following, it says of both Elizabeth and uh, Zechariah, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Um, a lot that goes wrong in our world 
everything that goes wrong in our world is ultimately the result of sin. The danger lies in someone saying, oh, this has happened to you, so you must have done something wrong. The minute that happens, we are on thin ice. If anyone could make that judgment, it would only be um, uh, Jesus or uh, one, of the, uh, one of the biblical writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We are never to go there. And the more we go there, the more harm we cause those who are suffering already. So let us not add insult to injury by accusing those who are, um, who are um, longing for something that hasn't happened and who are looking for something uh, better where calamity has met them to think that it's a matter of judgment. Okay, let's look through our three texts uh, um, um, in order as we go. Well, a comparison of Zachariah's experience with the angel and Mary's visit with the angel, which are paralleled here in Luke chapter 1, provide illustrations and help about the relative significance of the birth of Jesus. John's birth was a miracle, um, and it was something to be celebrated. It was an occasion for great joy. Uh, John the Baptist is called um, a prophet of the Most High, but it pales in comparison to the revelation that's given to Mary. Notice some of the comparisons, and I want just to sort of notice them as we go along. First of all, the angel Gabriel is said to have been sent from God. In the temple where the angel appears to Elizabeth, the angel just appears. We know it's from God, but here it's said that this angel came from God. Notice where the angel came. In one case, it comes to an important priest on the most significant day of his career, in the holy place, in the temple, in the center of Jerusalem. But here, Gabriel makes a trip to a peasant woman in a remote village in the outer part of the, uh, of the country, to um, a virgin um, in, the, in the town of Nazareth in Galilee. And when this angel comes to her, it seems as though Gabriel has this immediate rapport with Mary. And his comment to Mary actually throws Mary off, uh, off kilter. Um, he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Literally, this would be something like um, grace, one endowed with grace, the Lord is with you. Now, that's not just a nice greeting. And we can tell that, even though it is a nice greeting, by Mary's reaction. In verse 29, we read, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Um, Mary saw that something was up. And I want you to see what's up. Uh, Gabriel comes, and this is a loaded statement. He says, um, grace, favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary uh, is obviously spiritually very intuitive, and her reaction, I think, although there are different explanations for it, I think comes in the fact that this is obviously kind of a loaded statement. Um, if the pastor comes to you sometimes and says, I'd like to have lunch with you, uh, you sort of think, oh boy, what committee am I supposed to head up now, right? I mean, um, the, nice guy, the nice guy thing and the hospitable attention can often be an intimation of a favor that's about to be asked. And this is what happens with Mary. She's not one who is, um, in a more Roman Catholic understanding, sort of full of grace and able to dispense grace. She's received grace, and the text makes that clear. She is the one who has been favored. 
So in verse 29, we have, she was greatly troubled. And then the angel in verse 30, literally interprets the favor and the Lord be with you. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary would be saying, I knew it, what's up? So um, the favor statement is loaded. And then comes the Lord is with you. The Lord is literally going to be with her for nine months. And we read in verse uh, 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Well, every Jewish woman, uh, even to today, longs for that ultimate privilege of being the father of God's Messiah. And here it happened to Mary. And not only is she the father of uh, God's Messiah, but she is um, the, the, the father of uh, the most unique birth that's ever happened. She is the father of the divine Messiah. So um, there are a number of things that we learn here about Jesus and about um, what happened on that day. Um, I love the fact that Gabriel came in a homey setting to a peasant woman, not to some priest in the temple, but to a peasant woman, to somebody who was a righteous person and who just received God's favor. Her response is humble. Gabriel uh, likes Mary better than John, I I would, or better than Elizabeth, or better than Zachariah, sorry, I would suggest, uh, just by the, by the response. And here Mary is given word for word almost, the words of Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin will conceive and will give birth, and uh, you shall call his name Emmanuel. Here, however, the name changes. In verse uh, 31, we have Isaiah 7, 14, but Jesus is replaced with Emmanuel. Mary didn't need to be told that Emmanuel was with her. I mean, that was going to be painfully obvious for the next nine months. Um, and it was her privilege to do it, of course. But what's important is the role that this figure plays. The name is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. The Lord is going to do something great and is going to bring about salvation. And then all of the things that were in the list of the Messiah that we're familiar with, the eternality of his reign, the Davidic lineage, um, his being the son of the Most High, um, and his even being God, as is in some cases prophesied in the Old Testament, Psalm 45, Isaiah 9, Almighty God, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. So this is a wonderful homey occasion that makes us fond of Advent and Christmas. I want us to note, uh, finally in this section, Mary's humble response to the God of the impossible. At the end of this passage, uh, Mary says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Um, literally, it's not nothing is impossible, but literally, it's this. No word is void for the Lord. To which Mary responds, I'm a bondservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. So um, Mary here 
is responding by saying something like, let the word that conveys your will be your servant's mandate. This had huge implications for Mary. It could cost her her life. She could be stoned. She says, I understand. I've been the object of favor. And if this is the will of God, I accept it. And at the end of the next episode, uh, Elizabeth says to her in verse 45, and blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So we've talked about the background. We've talked about the, uh, the angel Gabriel coming to Mary. Let us look now at Mary's visit with Elizabeth, which is item number three on your outline, verses 39 to 45. The way the story is told says it all. Uh, the story begins in a Lucan fashion with uh, Luke, the historian, recording things carefully. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste to the hill country, to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Um, you're, you, you've got your facts straight, uh, Luke. Uh, it's known that priests often lived somewhere, uh, some often outside of, um, of Jerusalem. We know that from the story of the Good Samaritan where a Levite passed by uh, between the road in Jerusalem and Jericho. But what's going on here? Think of it. Um, Mary has just conceived and presumably nobody knows about it. And she hears that this older um, aunt type in her old age has become like Sarah again. And so she goes running into uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth's house and she greets Elizabeth. And then we hear the words, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, you would expect that to be coming from Mary, right? Because here, Elizabeth is now six months pregnant. She's showing. She's old. She's got this miracle baby. But the minute Mary opens her mouth, John the Baptist starts his ministry and starts pointing to Jesus, quite literally, to the point where Elizabeth um, has a kicking baby on her hands. And it is Elizabeth who says to Mary, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Um, I can't think of a, of a stronger irony. Uh, well, I'll say this again and, and, and prove myself wrong, but let's just say the situation is incredibly ironic here. And then Mary goes one step further and her words are almost, uh, just turn your head. The favored one, Elizabeth, turns and says to this young peasant girl who no one knows is pregnant yet, except for Elizabeth, presumably by prophetic inspiration. And she says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Elizabeth recognizes that in that, uh, in that, in that developing embryo is her Lord. The term Lord is the term that is used elsewhere of God and Jesus. And uh, there's no mistake about this being a Christologically divine manifestation. Elizabeth is seeing in that developing womb her God. And the blending of these two themes together, that Jesus is wholly divine and that Jesus is also somebody's child, bring together the two glorious things about the incarnation 
that Jesus was 100% divine and that Jesus was 100% human. And I want to suggest as a reminder for those of you who know historical theology somewhat that this is really important because it was Gregory of Nazianzus who opposed the, the heresy of Apollinarianism that somehow Jesus wasn't really fully human. Gregory of Nazianzus said it well when he said, what has not been assumed, that is what has not been taken up, cannot be redeemed. In other words, if Jesus were only 80% human, he could only redeem 80% of us. Jesus has to be 100% human in order for Jesus to redeem us as a human being. And he has to be 100% God in order to save us uh, in the way that only God can. There's a wonderful little gem of a book that I would encourage you to read sometime. And it is called Cur Deus Homo by um, St. Um, um, Anselm of Canterbury. Um, how, why God had to become man. And he has a wonderful theological explanation as to why Jesus had to be fully human and fully divine. My friends, such he is. And the lesson that we can learn, of course, in Advent Tide is the wonder of the birth of the Messiah. But also, let's give Mary her due. Mary is blessed because she had the faith that God could do the impossible, and she was willing to be a humble servant of God. May we too be the type, and this isn't the end, I just want to let you know, I've got a few more minutes. Let the word that conveys your will be your servant's mandate. Um, Mary is a wonderful example here. So finally we come to Mary's visit to Elizabeth, verses 39 to 45, something that is often called the Magnificat, or sorry, we come to um, heading number four, the Magnificat. Um, the, the word Magnificat simply is Latin for magnified, and it picks up on the first line of this song. Mary says in response to um, all that God has done in her life, my soul magnificates, my soul magnifies the Lord. So that's where the term comes from. And uh, we read it so often that we can overlook some really important things that are going on here. Um, and it's, it's interesting that in Protestant circles, because of the attention that's given to Mary, um, we tend to downplay Mary. Um, and we shouldn't do that. Uh, we ought to give Mary her due, not more than she deserves, not more than is theologically appropriate, but certainly not less. And so here, um, Mary um, is the favored one um, of the Lord, and she is magnifying the Lord, um, and um, we shouldn't leave this out. Um, there was um, a woman uh, who wrote an article for the Washington Post in uh, December 20th of, of 2018. Her name um, uh, was D.L. Mayfield, and she did a survey on Twitter of evangelicals wanting to know what they thought of the Magnificat, and she surveyed 1,100 people. And more than, uh, sorry, they, there were more than 1,100 respondents to her Twitter message about the Magnificat. And she says this, 28% said they'd never heard the title Magnificat. 43% said that their churches never read or discussed this passage. 21% said that they had encountered it only a few times. That's been my experience as a Protestant as well. We can overlook the virtue of Mary and the fact that she was favored and was a truly remarkable woman. 
And my friends, it is true, she was the mother of God. The mother of God. Um, now, you, you have to say that if you believe that Jesus is totally divine. And it's true, but the problem is, is that it can be a, a theologically dangerous thing to say as well. Because um, it's more an act of grace than it is uh, something that, uh, that, that, that ought to elevate um, Mary to the status of Queen of Heaven or something like that. One of the other things that I was interested to read about the Magnificat was that it has been banned in, in several countries throughout history. Uh, and recently that included India, Guatemala, and Argentina. Why would you ban the Magnificat? Well, read verses one to, uh, 51 to 53 about what Mary's doing. She is uh, saying that God has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thought of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he sent the rich away empty-handed. Oscar Romero, the uh, martyr Roman Catholic priest, um, compared this Magnificat to the situation um, in, of the people to whom he was ministering um, in Central America. So let us reclaim the Magnificat, and let us note briefly that it comes with four headings, and I will just touch on them as we go. It begins with Mary giving grace and, and, uh, and glory to God. And she says that in uh, verse uh, 47. And then she gives the reasons why, because she's been the beneficiary of grace in verse 48. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now, for all generations, people will call me blessed. And then she broadens the scope into a second heading where Mary then focuses upon God's mercy to people more generally. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So the humble and the, uh, the, 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 the humble, the, those who are willing to humble themselves before God receive God's favor. And then comes God's special love for Israel, which uh, is um, picked up here. And um, these verses actually echo ancient Hebrew war poetry. Uh, they remind us of Judges chapter 5 and Exodus chapter 15, where Israel has accomplished some kind of a mega battle and experienced victory over it. And Mary is comparing her situation to that. And uh, I'll just mention that in, in, a, in, a, in a minute or two as we come closer to a close, which we're getting close to. So um, Mary is uh, saying that God has a special love um, for um, the lowly and also more specifically for Israel in verses 54 and 55. What are the lessons we can draw from this? Well, I want to suggest, and now we are at the end of, uh, of the outline, that two lessons come from Mary's Magnificat. There are many, but I want to score two. One is that we would do well to be like Mary and to bridge the gap between the great and the small. Now, it was no small thing that she was bearing a child, but uh, neither was this uh, somebody conquering empires and, uh, and, and mounting up armies of thousands of people. So Mary realized that God works in the so-called small or the ordinary or the domestic, the miraculous domestic as much as he does raising up empires and bringing them down. And then it's kind of all the same thing. And some of us, I think, think that what we're doing is just, you know, kind of low and insignificant, you know, and we're not, you know, 
Nobody will remember us, you know, 100 years afterwards. Nobody's going to write a biography of you. Uh, and what am I doing? I'm, I'm just a servant of the Lord. I'm trying to do what I'm called. My friends, that can have mega impact in the same way as um, a revolution, a political revolution. And so Mary's comparison here is apt. And then this is a lesson that's particularly apropos for Advent. And with this, I will close. And that is the following. Mary understood the blessing that she had received as kind of a mini picture of the salvation that would come one day at the end. And there's a pattern in biblical prophecy here that, um, for example, those of you who have studied at Regent College have heard Gordon Fee talk about. Um, when Jesus was talking about the end times, he talked about the destruction of Jerusalem as though it was the end time. Um, when the prophets spoke about the Babylonians coming and conquering the Israelites, they understood it to be uh, what seemed to be the last event in all of earth. My point is this, that it's okay, and it's actually biblically justifiable to take the calamities that happen in our day. I don't know, we've ever had any calamity happening anywhere we know? Something maybe named after a Greek letter? I mean, something like Omicron. Um, it's possible not to see that necessarily as the beginning of the end times, but we're supposed to pin it on the same wall as the end times. Um, if the end times when God comes to judge the world and when God comes to save the world is this mural, we are to take these daily catastrophes and these daily victories and to kind of put it as a, as a color it the same as the mural and post it on the wall of the mural. Because these can be reminders of times when we give thanks in a mega way. And these can be times when we're reminded, you know, this may not be the judgment of God. What is God trying to say to us in the midst of something like Omicron? And even if God is not specifically judging for us, the people of God ought to have ears tuned to this sort of thing and to be able to say, ah, this resonates with what I read in Scripture about the end times. And I'm going to make sure that I've repented and that I've, um, I've, I'm understanding this against the backdrop of what happens in the end times. So my friends, these three episodes from Luke at the time of Advent, I think give us reason, as I've said in the title, to give thanks for God's blessing. And I want to highlight three as I close. And with that, I will close. Scripture's clarity, which has served to make the identity of the Messiah clear. Mary's example as a humble servant of God committed to doing his will. And then, of course, of Jesus himself, the divine Messiah, the mighty champion who has come to rescue us from sin and death and to introduce us to that era of salvation which has now begun and will continue forever. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.